are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we continue in our exposition of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. So I invite you to turn with me to Leviticus. We come to chapter 18 this evening. This book about approaching a holy God, communing with a holy God. God has entered the tabernacle and he has shown Israel how they can likewise enter the tabernacle, come into God's presence. And we are coming off of the high of Leviticus chapter 16 that we concluded last Sunday evening. The day of atonement, this highest day for the Israelites, where they were reminded very visibly and tangibly that their sins are atoned for, that their sins were, were removed from them by this scapegoat that was sent out of the city into the wilderness. And the sacrifice is offered to purify them. They were justified. These great words, the propitiation for their sins the expiation of their sins from them. And so now we come to Leviticus 18. We come into the second half of the book. And so this evening we'll read Leviticus 18 verses 1 through 5, and then we'll actually skip down and pick up at verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. And say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord We'll pick up in verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who are before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the uh, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, after we come off of Leviticus 16, the center point, the high point of the book, we now enter the last half of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 27, the end of the book. This is what is often called the holiness code. The holiness code, it is a code to instruct Israel how to be holy before a God. So they've been brought into the presence of God. And how do we walk in the presence of God? We walk in the presence of a holy God in a holy way. And this second half of the book is instructions for how to live in a holy way. 
just give you a, a roadmap, roadmap of, of where we've been, where we're going. We started and did nine sermons on Leviticus 1 through 15. Remember, the, we had the sacrifices. We had the, the first worship service. We had Nadab and Abihu. We had clean and unclean laws. We had nine sermons there. We did two on Leviticus 16, that day of atonement. And we have approximately eight remaining. I reserve the right to add more or take some away. But approximately eight remaining as we consider this holy life. And it includes all kinds of things. The core is how to live, but it also talks about God's holiness, which we'll dip into next week. Festivals and feasts and the lamp and the bread. And what do these things mean as we walk in the presence of God? So we have wonderful things before us. But we come today to to Leviticus 18 and really 18 through 20 form a literary unit. Chapters 18 and 20 are, are really parallel in many ways. We read these exhortations to obey God's law. And then chapter 18 goes into in great detail many sexual sins that the people must abstain from. And then in chapter 20, those sins are again called out. Do not do these. And then punishments are listed there as well. And in eight, so in 18 and 20, these, these commands to obey and these lists of sexual sins are listed. And then in chapter 19, it's the center of this little piece of Leviticus. It's a series of laws for God's people as they live in community with one another. What does it look like to love your neighbor? And so we'll consider those things as we come to them in time. The little section we're looking at today, these really five verses at the beginning of Leviticus 18, my goal is to to lead us to verse 5 and spend most of our time there in verse 5. This is a a phrase, part of a, a verse that has been widely studied and I think in our day is largely misunderstood. And it's this phrase, if a person does my statutes and my rules, he shall live by them. What does God mean? As Moses speaks on behalf of the Lord. What does God mean when he tells us, if you live by my statutes and my rules, you will live by them. But we'll see ultimately there are two ways to live, perfect obedience or faith in Christ. These are our two options, and we have four L's this evening we'll walk through. I try not to be too cutesy, but tonight, here we go. Four L's, Lord, land, law, and live. Lord, land, law, and live. And so we'll drive to this final point, live, as we consider this, but we'll briefly address the first three points. First, let's consider the Lord. This phrase, I am the Lord, appears in these three chapters 24 times. In these first five verses, it shows up three times. It says, I am the Lord your God in verse two. I am the Lord your God in verse four. I am the Lord in verse five. Repeated like a mantra over and over. And this is the foundation for God's commands. Why are you to obey? I am the Lord. If we remember, we see Lord here in these small caps. We've said this several times before. But to remind us all, when we see Lord in these special letters, these small capital letters, It's the ESV translators giving us a hint that there's a special word that's being used here. This is not a generic word for God. This is not a a generic word for a deity. This is God's covenantal name that he only uses with his people. This is the word that we commonly pronounce Yahweh. So I am Yahweh, your God. I am your covenant Lord is what God's saying over and over. I am Yahweh, your God. And this echoes... Exodus 20. You remember here where God gives the law, the Ten Commandments, the summary of all the moral law. And how does he begin it? He says, I am the Lord your God. That same phrase that's used here. Back in Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Our larger catechism helps us understand what does this mean? Before God gives us the law, he tells us who he is and what he has done. How does this help us approach the law? The larger, larger catechism is wonderfully helpful here. Question 101. In this preface, God manifests his sovereignty as being Yahweh, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God, having his being in and of himself and giving being to all his words and works and that he is a God in a covenant, as with Israel of old, so with all his people. And that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments. So when it says Yahweh, this is grounding everything that's coming in the person of our triune God, who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, might, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The redeeming God the God of the covenant, God who promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I will be your God and you'll be my people. He is the God who rescued Israel from slavery. This is a high and mighty and majestic God who owns the land and the sea, who owns you and me, who has the right to tell us what is good, what is right and what is true. He can bind us with his law and command us to do that which pleases him. This is the God who is speaking. He is also the compassionate and merciful one. He is the covenant God who called, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, who is not seeking after God, but he called him to himself. He has redeemed Abraham and promised that there would be a king to come from him. He's a redeeming God. He's a good God. And this is the starting place as we address all of God's law. God's law is good because it comes from a good God. The law is not something evil, something to run from, something that is terrifying. It is good fundamentally because it is from a good God. So this preface, I am the Lord, sets the stage. And then in verse three, we see the introduction of this idea of the land. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. There's a contrast here between the statutes of the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the statutes of God. Contrast between what is done in Egypt and what is done by the pagans in Canaan and that which must be done in the promised land by God's holy people. God's people are to reflect God's character by, by obeying his law in his holy land. And the land, therefore, must be kept clean. We read uh, verse 24 through the end of the chapter, and it makes very clear the Canaanites were purged from the land. They were vomited out of the land. The Lord allowed Israel to conquer them because of their iniquity. Because of their sin, they made God's holy land unclean. They defiled it with their sin. And so Israel is commanded to not make the land unclean in verse 28, lest it vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. God's land is holy. God had a holy land in Palestine that was set apart for his holy people to live holy lives. It was a holy place and it must be kept holy. And why is that? Because it is where God would dwell with his people. And this land is where God would be made known to the entire earth. This land God used as an as a, uh, instrument of, of instructing the world about himself. 
The whole land was holy, but it became more holy as you came to Jerusalem. It became more holy as you ascended the, uh, the mountain. It became more holy as you entered the temple. The Gentiles could come to the outer part of the temple. Then you, to, you had to be a Jew to enter closer into the temple. Then you had to be a priest to come even closer. Then you had to be the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies. All of this signifying the, the gradation of holiness. The closer you come to God, as we saw earlier in Leviticus, the closer you come to God, the more holy you must be. And all of these externals were set up to demonstrate this reality of what holiness looks like. As, God, as part of God's covenantal dealings with Abraham, he promised a land. This land, what is now Palestine, this land for God's people to dwell with a holy God. And he fulfilled that promise by bringing all of his people into that land. It was after Leviticus. They were still wandering in the desert at that point. But they were going to the promised land. They were headed to the promised land. And in that promised land, they will not do what the Canaanites do, they were told. They must obey God. So the land is a, a holy, sanctified place where they must obey God. And then we come to verse four, where the law becomes center focus. Lord, land, and now law, because this is what Israel was called to do in the land. They're called to obey. Obey God's statutes, obey his rules, and to walk in them. He says in verse four, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Point blank, God is reminding Israel over and over, you must take my law seriously. You must take these to heart. You must walk in them. This is a pathway for life. You must conform your whole being to my law. Again, it is a good law. It comes from a good God. But you are called to keep them. They are to be obeyed. They are to be kept and honored with all of the lives of God's people. So we can say, well, which laws is he speaking of here? Because there's a lot of them. But this is quite comprehensive language. He uses several different words to speak of the law of God here. And this includes, for Israel, certainly the the law they received on Mount Sinai from God, the Ten Commandments and all all the laws that flow from that, the moral law of God as we would call that. These things that are true morally in all times, in all places, for all people. We must obey God. But they're also called to obey these ceremonial laws that we've seen in Leviticus. These laws that point them to their Redeemer. These laws that are good because they're calling Israel to offer these sacrifices, to be reminded of the God who saved them and to show them what salvation by faith looks like. They're called to obey, to be reminded of God's gracious provision for them. They're called to obey the civil laws because God is setting up a nation with penalties and and with punishments for violating different laws. They're called to obey these. And these include part moral, part civil, these laws in chapter 18. These laws about sexuality, laws against incest, laws against adultery, laws against homosexuality, laws against bestiality. These laws are to be obeyed by God's people. And for Israel, the punishments in chapter 20 were to be meted out in Israel and to be a just society. And so the laws were comprehensive. The laws, Israel was called to walk in all of them. And then we come to now verse five, where they're called now to obey that they would live. There's a conditional promise held out in verse five. 
It says, if a person does them, talking about God's statutes and God's rules, then he shall live by them. See, there's a condition here. If you obey, then you will live. If you do what God commands, you will have life. Keeping of the law leads to living. And now the big question is, what does living mean here? Well, some might say this is just natural blessings in life, right? If you, if you are obedient to God, yes, you will live a more fruitful and full life. And so you'll receive some kind of natural blessing. Maybe these are blessings of sanctification, or as one of my professors said, this is simply speaking of an abundant and fulfilled life here and now. But I don't think these interpretations do justice to the text. The rest of this text, I think, makes it very clear what kind of living God is speaking of in this text. We can see later in chapter 18 that we read earlier, there's a threat of being vomited out of the land if they make the land unclean with their disobedience. Or we could go to chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 22, where it says this, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And so more explicitly, he connects this idea of living to this promised land so that they would not be vomited out of the land. So this living is living in the blessedness in the land of promise that God's given them. And so God's telling Israel, if you keep my law, you will live in this promised land. Remember the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where God drove out all the enemies of Israel. If you obey, you will live peacefully in the land. And so, of course, I hear your objections. Doesn't this undermine salvation by faith and not salvation by works? This sounds like we're working for something, does it not? Or at least Israel was. But no, this does not undermine salvation by faith. Hang with me for a few minutes. We'll work through this. This is one of those things that might take some effort. And this is the first time you've heard this. We might not be able to fill in all the gaps this evening. But this is an important theological concept in all of the Old Testament as God is dealing with his nation, Israel. There are really two levels of covenant dealings with his people going on. And the first one is on an eternal, a spiritual, salvific level. And this is where we see we are saved from sin to eternal blessedness by God's grace, by a substitutionary sacrifice. All those heavy loaded theological terms I just used. This is what we speak of when we see from the beginning after Adam and Eve fell from, fell from their state of blessedness into sin. And from then on, God has graciously brought people to himself, promising eternal rest, eternal life with him by faith. Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We look to Jesus Christ in faith and his righteousness is now our righteousness. Eternally, we are set. Eternally, we are before God now standing righteously. And so we are declared righteous. We will forever, eternally be in God's presence. This is the foundational level that we speak of all the time. But there is a second level for the people of God under the old covenant under the Mosaic covenant. And this level was a visible temporal level. So layered on this eternal scheme of salvation that God is proclaiming over and over and over, for them there's layered a temporal, a visible level. And this is what this promise relates to. Continued life and enjoyment of God's presence in the land 
was conditioned on the people's obedience and keeping the land free from defilement. And why is this so? Because the land represented to the Old Testament people of God, it represented to them our heavenly promised land. And this is what Hebrews said about Abraham anyway. He said, Hebrews says that Abraham understood that the promised land wasn't referring just to a piece of physical land on this earth. It's referring to a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And so this earthly land that God did promise and fulfilled his promise and gave to Israel, it's always picturing for Israel and now for us as we look back on it, is picturing heavenly dwelling with God. Or better yet, dwelling with God in a new heavens and a new earth, the place where righteousness dwells. And Israel was supposed to be a picture to the entire world of what it looks like to dwell in communion with God. They're supposed to demonstrate for them what it looks like to be holy in the presence of a holy God in his holy land. It was a microcosm of what heaven should be. This level, this second, secondary level, it was layered on top of the spiritual level in order to teach spiritual truths. And this is why Paul said that the law was a guardian for the people under the old covenant. It was a guardian because it was teaching them spiritual truths under this secondary level. It was teaching them about God and his promises. It was to guide them. And it was a physical outward demonstration of spiritual eternal truths. And you're saying, what are those truths? Here's the big one. Here's the big truth that the secondary level was teaching Israel and it continues to teach us now and forever in the future. Israel could not measure up. It was to teach them they could not do what they were called to do. It was to teach them they are sinners who are in need of a great savior. Israel had precisely zero good kings. Maybe David was the, the best example of a possible exception to that. But I just realized not too long ago, reading through the Bible this year, Josiah, he established, the, he went back to observing the Passover as no king before him had ever done. They had not practiced the Passover in Israel all the way back to the time of the judges. David didn't even practice the Passover. He wasn't reminding the people of God's graciousness. And of course, we know of David's great and heinous sins. David was a failure on this level. Israel had precisely zero good kings. Israel had precisely zero generations that faithfully obeyed God. Israel had precisely zero spans of time where they did not defile the land. And so what happened? God was patient. God waited. But the land vomited them out. The northern kingdom for their rebellion against God first was, was basically wiped off the map never to be heard from again. And then years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were taken into exile, taken into captivity in Babylon. The land vomited them out. Israel failed miserably. Even on this secondary level, they could not do what God called them to do. They couldn't keep God's law. They had every reason to. They saw the, the, their forefathers had, had been brought out of Egypt by God's mighty right hand. They saw him deliver them from all the Canaanites, driving them from the land. They saw God do incredible thing after incredible thing. 
They saw the sacrifices. They saw the promises, but yet they couldn't obey. How quickly they spiraled out of control. But nevertheless, despite at a national level, Israel was disobedient. Nevertheless, God had a faithful remnant. Though the second layer, this visible outward layer crumbled, the first layer of eternal security because of God's coming Messiah, the first layer was not dependent upon their faithfulness, and it continued. You think of Israel, who or Judah, the the, the the southern kingdom, who was taken into exile in Babylon. Who do we find in exile? We see Daniel, the faithful, righteous representative. Even though Israel failed, even though Israel was taken into exile, there was still a righteous remnant nonetheless. We see a people saved by God's grace through all the pages of Scripture. Even a man such as Solomon, who failed so tremendously, whose sins and failings set the kingdom up for division and ultimate collapse, was a man who failed at the second level, but was yet still saved by grace. He was clearly a man who needed grace to be saved. And that is the lesson for all of us today. As we look back on Israel, as we look back on these commands to Israel, we cannot be saved by the law because we are law breakers. Israel had a wonderful, peaceful, prosperous existence held out to them if they just obeyed God, but they failed. Adam in the garden, God's dwelling place, had eternal life with God held out before him if he just obeyed, but he failed. The second layer was to point us to our utter spiritual failure, to point us to Adam's utter spiritual failure. Our complete inability to merit anything good before God. In fact, we see this principle, do the law and live by it, repeated by Christ. We read this earlier from Luke 10. Jesus was asked by the lawyer, not all lawyers are bad, but this one was. He was asked by the lawyer, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's, his eyes are, are beyond the horizon of the land. He's saying, Jesus, what do I do for eternal life? Maybe he did understand in this land there was into, baked into it a, a picture of eternal life. Maybe he understood that. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, do the law. And the man did a wonderful job summarizing the law. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That eternal life. Jesus said, if you do all my law, you will live eternally. And the man, the weaselly lawyer, trying to justify himself, saying, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Maybe I've done it. And Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Samaritan. Samaritan, who your neighbor is the man you find beaten on the side of the road as you pass by. Your neighbor is every single person that you come into contact. You are to love them as yourself, crushing the spirits of this lawyer, crushing us all, saying, what must I do to be saved? I cannot keep the law. I do not love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul, with all my strength and with all my mind. 
Oh, if you knew my heart and my mind, we cannot love him as we ought. We cannot love the Lord, our God, this covenant God, this eternal and unchangeable God, this infinitely pure and holy God. We cannot love him as he ought to be loved. We failed. We stand condemned. Paul makes this point twice. Once, we actually read this morning from Romans 10. Makes this point also in Galatians 3, quoting Leviticus 18. Paul writes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, like this lawyer that Jesus talked to. They're under a curse. This is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, Paul writes, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one, he quotes Leviticus, the one who does them shall live by them. He comes back here to the two ways. There are two ways to live. You either live by perfect obedience to do the law and live by it, or by looking to Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. We're instructed. Faith or works, which shall it be for you? Will you lay down your arms and look to the one who did do it and lived? Or will you try yet again and fail yet again to merit salvation before God? And Paul makes the wonderful application for us, continuing on in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. You are under the curse because you failed, but yet Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was a cursed death that Jesus experienced. Cursed death for his people. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. This blessing might come to the Gentiles. It's not any longer kept to the land of Palestine. The blessing of Abraham now expands to the four corners of the earth. As God is calling all people, Jews and Gentiles alike to himself. So that as Paul continues, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Not works of the law. Not keeping it to earn it, but through faith. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our justification. This arrangement of obedience to stay in the land was intended to drive a sinful people deeper into the heart of their Savior. It was intended to make them cry out, we cannot do it. We cannot save ourselves. That should be our cry as well. We cannot do it. We cannot save ourselves. We must not be a haughty people. There's no room for pride or arrogance because we cannot merit a single thing. There's nothing good that we can do until we are regenerated by the Spirit, given new hearts. Jesus, though, did it. Do this and you will live. Who is the one that did do it and lived? It is our blessed Savior, Jesus, who stared the law in the face, the good law of God, and accomplished every single thing where he was tempted as we are. Yet without sin, 
He continued every day of his life perfectly obedient to his father. He obeyed every rule, every statute, and he gives his people the benefit of what he did. Do the law and you will live. He did the law and now we live. Jesus Christ obeyed that we might live eternally. What a savior he is. What a salvation this is. How glorious it is. And he is worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all of our love. And now we can come back to this law, not to earn anything, not to say, I'm going to be more favorable in your sight, O Lord. Now we can come back to the law, say, thank you, Lord, for the salvation. May I honor you by being obedient. May I honor you and please you by obeying your law out of gratitude, out of thankfulness. We turn back to the law as a reflection of God's good character, not to keep it perfectly, not to merit anything, but to say, this is my rule of practice. This is what I want to be. I want to look more like my savior who did this all. So now we have a new motivation to look at the law. The law doesn't condemn us any longer. The law is now our path of righteousness. The law is now how we can live. And all of these laws, these moral laws, these laws about sexuality, this is the path we are to be on. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind. And then we can turn out to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll see more of the contours of what this law looks like. But here we see most clearly a gracious Savior who, though we are in our sin, came and rescued us. Praise the Lord. Let's look to this Savior in faith and let us now look to him in prayer. Gracious Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we adore you because you obeyed the law that we might live. You did it and gave us all the blessings of living eternally. What a gracious Savior you are. Oh, Father, we rejoice in this. We pray that your spirit would not leave us alone, but instead he would continue to be working in our lives to enable us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now with a new heart and a new motivation, knowing we are freed by the work of Christ, received by faith alone, may that drive us to good works, not to earn, but to display your love to a watching world. Bless us, Father. May we do this for your great glory, knowing you're saved by grace alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.